From the newsroom of the Red and Black, I'm Luke Gittlery. This is the front page. It's Thursday, November 14th. This week, we talk about the stereotypes and microaggressions faced by Asian Americans throughout U.S. history and here at UGA. Plus, we parse through the reasons why Phi Kappa and the Demosthenian societies aren't having their inner society debate. And we have a quick update about the Greek life story in which $1.3 million was stolen over the course of a decade. And we're here with assistant culture editor Rachel Priest. And Rachel, your story this week is about stigmatization, specifically in Asian communities. How did you get the idea to write this story? Hey, Luke. Yeah. Um, so I guess inspiration for this story came a lot from my own personal experiences. Uh, I was adopted from China, and so kind of growing up in the United States, I've faced not too many, but um, as I've gotten older, more, um, you know, either microaggressions or stereotypes uh, pertaining to my race. And so that was kind of the inspiration. But then when I began to dig deeper, I saw that UGA um, has a very large population of Asians, and in fact, they make up the largest minority group represented on campus at 11.5% of all undergraduate students, um, which is about 3,430, according to the 2018 UJA Factbook. And since this is such a large, well, the largest minority population on campus, um, who or what were some student experiences with microaggressions and stereotypes? So there are a good amount. Um, I guess the biggest one would kind of be just the model minority stereotype, which is this idea of Asian Americans as being inherently smart, um, excelling in math or science, pursuing degrees um, and professions that are, you know, you would think of kind of as higher, um, I guess like not blue collar work. And so that is some of the biggest things that they talked about. And just, I guess, kind of being viewed as not, maybe not understanding what's going on, not really knowing how to speak the language. All the students I talked to were Asian American, so they were born here. Um, and grew up here, and some of them were also biracial as well. So they either had a Caucasian father or mother. And so that was really interesting as well to kind of hear what they had to say. Um, because two of the students I talked to, they consider themselves as white passing, which means that they not, not necessarily like look um, outrightly Asian. And so they had some interesting experiences where, you know, people would say things kind of about Asians that, and they weren't aware that the people they were talking to or kind of talking with were Asian. And so that was really interesting to hear some of those stories. Yeah. And your article does a lot of research into kind of how these stigmas and stereotypes came about. Can you talk a little bit about the research you did for those? Yeah, so I did a good amount of research for this article, and so I just kind of looked, first I looked at a lot of news articles pertaining to the topic. So, for example, the model minority stereotype, it came really about in the 1960s, and it was kind of a time of political unrest and social change, and so at that time, social scientists and other media spokespeople kind of looked at Asian Americans um, as this group who were not very... They didn't protest as much. They weren't as outspoken. They were, in this article I read, they were quoted, it was quoted saying that they kind of had outwided the whites. So they were being seen in more like these professions as like doctors or lawyers. Um, And so that's kind of where that came from. But if you really trace the history back as well, it's interesting because even though they are seen as this model minority, which is kind of, I guess, on the better end of the spectrum of, um, you know, a stereotype or microaggression, 
Asian Americans have faced a lot of problems in the United States. For example, like the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 was passed, and that limited or that stopped all immigration from China. And during World War II, the passing of Executive Order 9066, um, which relocated an estimated 120,000 Japanese Americans um, after Japan had bombed Pearl Harbor, is also pretty um, pretty big in this period of history where Asians were feared. And so it's like a very multifaceted and complex history. As far as like UGA students that you talked to, did any of them have specific experiences about how they have seen or experienced um, like model minority stereotypes and what that felt like for them? So I think the, a lot of the students I talked to, since there is a pretty big Asian population here um, at UGA, I think a lot of them were saying that they hadn't really faced outright you know, this imp- imposing um, stereotype of model minority on, you know, what they were doing or who they were. Um, and in fact, one of the students was saying that he's seen kind of a shift in younger generations of Asian Americans um, to, you know, kind of pursue what they what they want to do and, you know, parents support of that as well. How did they see that shift away from being considered the model minority? Um, so one of the students was talking about how he's kind of seen a lot of millennials or Gen Xers kind of pursue paths uh, more creative in the more creative field. So he was talking a lot about YouTubers he's seen. There's a good amount of Asian Americans that are hosting their own um, hosting their own channels or shows and kind of promoting stuff like that. And I think to that ties in as well with the shifting portrayals of Asian Americans in Hollywood as well, which we talked a lot about. You talk in your article about shifting perceptions of Asian Americans in Hollywood, and I guess that kind of ties into. Uh, what you quote in your article as yellow fever. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, so the yellow fever is kind of this fetishization of Asian American or of Asian women specifically, um, and it's kind of just like this ideal that Asian women, Asian women are more docile, they're less likely to speak up, and they are kind of just viewed as exotic as well. And so in my article, I talked to three female students here, and all of them had something to say about that. Um, So one of them, she's Korean American, and she was saying that, you know, she feels that sometimes people, you know, would want to date her or have expressed interest in her just based solely on the fact that she's Korean. Um, And she talked about it being more, less of like about who she is and more about just the way she looks. Another student also talked about when she was in high school, this guy in her theater class told her that he had a thing for Asians and then he kind of proceeded to like flirt with her. And so there's just those kind of microaggressions and those kind of attitudes. And um, when I was doing my research, I came across this social media channel called The Flushlight Chronicles. And it's this Asian American woman who or she, she created a Tinder profile, and after that she started getting all these messages just pertaining really to the way she looked. And so that was really interesting to kind of dive into that and read some of those things that people have said. Yeah, and I mean, while it is, I think Fleshlight Chronicles has like tens of thousands of followers on Instagram, so it is something that a lot of people relate to or at least acknowledge. Um, but how are groups on UGA's campus working to... Uh, either destigmatize or just working against these traditional stereotypes of Asian Americans? So the biggest thing that some of these students were saying is that just, I guess, educating um, UGA population and not necessarily calling them out for things they might not know, but just kind of educating them about the different cultures um, of you know different Asian groups. And I think another big thing too is that a lot of times Eastern Asians get lumped into one big category, but in fact there's so many diverse um, countries that these people have come from with their own unique cultures. And so I think that the biggest thing that they're doing is just kind of educating um, 
and providing programs or events such as like the Night in Saigon or the new Lunar New Year event. Uh, those are both annual events. And so I guess just kind of like having those available for not only Asian students to participate in and feel like they have a home here at UGA, but to invite other UGA students to come and experience that as well and just learn about these cultures. Another thing that one of the organizations had done is they had hosted a panel with the Hispanic Student Association and talked about microaggressions that both groups face, and they're both very different um, for sure, but I think, you know, just opening up that dialogue between not only, you know, a Caucasian and a minority group, but between minority groups as well. All right, Rachel. Well, thanks for coming on and talking about an article that's a change of pace, but I think really important in terms of understanding different cultures here at UGA. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Luke. I really enjoyed talking with you about it. And we're back with campus news editor Savannah Sicarella. And Savannah, your article this week focuses on the inner society debate or lack of for the next couple of years. Um, Can you just talk about the inner society debate, what it is and why it's significant? Okay, so the inner society debate is this competition, this oratory competition between the rivaling um, literary societies at UGA, Phi Kappa, and Demosthenian literary societies. Both societies are known to have a rivalry going on um, about 199 years, Um, but the debate itself didn't really come around until 1991. Um, They've always competed um, in some fashion, but the specifics of the competition and its name have been lost due to um, it being handwritten in notes. This is the first time since 1991 that the debate has not been held. Um, and this is significant in that it, it highlights the oratory skills of um, the society's best speakers, and it's supposed to determine which society is the best in oration for that year. Previously, your article says, there's been some debate, no pun intended, <laughs> <laughs> um, there's been some debate about who the societies put forward as their orators. Um, but this year for this round of um, scheduling, they couldn't come to a decision and they just won't be doing the inner society debate. So can you talk about why this time around that disagreement was so profound and led them to not even schedule the debate? Yeah, so Phi Kappa has this history of kind of disbanding and reforming historically during the Civil War. Um, And again, I believe two more times um, until its um, recent formation, uh, most recent formation. And uh, during that time, Phi Kappa has grown in numbers and also lost a lot of members. So when the debate was formed in 1991, it was sort of expected that Phi Kappa would reuse veteran speakers during the debate because their numbers weren't um, comparable to Demosthenian's numbers. But right around 2009, the society began to grow in size, and our members from Demosthenian took issue with using repeat speakers, and a member that I interviewed from Demosthenian remarked that one specific veteran speaker had participated in the inner society debate like six years in a row because he was a graduate student and um, they were not a fan of of doing that. Um, and that's where kind of the discord started 
um, and they were unable to come to a compromise over um, the amount of times that speakers should participate in the ISD. Okay, so the main disagreement kind of coming by how many times a speaker can uh, participate in the ISD. From who you spoke to, how did the societies view each other? I mean, so generally relations are pretty civil. Um, There's no hard feelings between each organization, but they are very passionate about what they do, and they are very staunch in their opinions. they they view each member views the other society respectfully but they want to respect the wishes of their bodies right so there was a quote from um the chief justice matt aldridge uh, for phi kappa who said that we're disappointed that we won't be having this isd with demosthenian this semester Um, But that's obviously not more disappointing than it would be to ban our own speakers from competing to accommodate Demosthenian's interests. So they have this obvious disagreement in their kind of core beliefs, their philosophies. But do the two sides believe that they will come together eventually? Yeah, so many of the members from both organizations that I spoke to said that there is hope um, eventually to... Um, bring the ISD back into the inter-society agreement. Um, The chief justices, uh, the judicial council of each organization, when they meant to um, draw the the new inter-society agreement, they added an amendment that would allow future judicial councils to um, add or take away anything before the next renegotiation period, which would be fall 2022. So, you know, next semester, if they decide that they're able to come to, to, like, on common ground, um, able to develop a compromise, I mean, they can have the debate. Um, But for now, they're very staunch in their beliefs, and they do not want to compromise, to be frank. All right, Savannah, well, thanks for coming on and talking about your article. Anytime. And we're back with Hunter Riggle, news editor at the Red and Black, and Hunter, There's an update on the Greek life story about the $1.3 million that was stolen from several organizations managed by the Greek life office. And what is the update? Yeah, so um, those three organizations, which are um, IFC, the Inter-Fraternity Council, uh, the Panhellenic Council, and UJ Miracle, uh, have been reimbursed. Um, It was about $185,000 for Miracle, uh, 594,000 for Panhellenic and uh, 511,000 for IFC. So IFC also got a uh, additional $25,000 insurance payment from its outside insurer, uh, UGA told us. That money that was taken sort of in smaller increments over a decade illegally has now been uh, returned to those, those student organizations. And at this point, do we know or have we heard where that reimbursement money is coming from specifically? Yeah, we actually uh, don't know that information at this moment. We have asked, um, and the UGA sort of communications people are working on getting that information to us, uh, so we're told. All right, Hunter, well, thanks for a really quick update on a story that's been pretty big over the past year. Yeah, no problem. And that was The Front Page. Our show is produced by Stephen Barr, as well as edited and hosted by myself, Luke Guillory. Keep an eye out for this week's paper in newsstands on campus or around Athens. 
This week's issue looks at the closing of Icon Jane, an Athens bakery and cafe, and there's a look at the frontline matchup for the UGA Auburn football game. Plus, a look at students' reactions to the recent anti-abortion demonstrations in Tate Plaza. Thanks for listening. We hope you tune in next week.